And we're going to get into the Word of God. And that's always the place to turn when we're not sure what God's up to. Because He shows us what He's always been up to. And so we turn there now. John chapter 6, as we look at this great act of provision that God gives to His people who are hungry. The question is, hungry for what? And what we'll see is we need to talk about bread. So both today and then maybe a little bit next week, but definitely uh, the third week, there'll be lots of bread talk. Um, Jesus is going to do his miracle now, and we're going to look at that, verses 1 to 15. Um, Then he's going to walk on some water. Why John orders these things the way he does. And then Jesus gives a great discourse on being the bread of life. And so we'll look at that, not today, but in two weeks. And so... Um, of course, bread is important, and I'm just not, I'm not sure we get it, how important bread is, because bread's not something, as Americans in particular, you know, not all of us are from America, so you might understand this more, but in America, at least in, in the time that we've been alive, we never had a bread problem, but it turns out Bread problems are often the problem that leads to greater problems. And there's no better example of that than the French Revolution. So, if you read the email, did we send this? I don't know if we sent this email out. But I, we might have sent an email out. I haven't checked my email for a couple days. Um... I want to make the claim today that we would never know the name Napoleon Bonaparte if the world had taken the message of John 6 to heart. Big claim. And I make that claim because I don't think we would know Napoleon Bonaparte if it weren't for the French Revolution. And I don't think the French Revolution, though for you history majors, it's complex. There's a lot of things going on. There's the Enlightenment. There's sort of the the tearing down of religion and God and all the things that, that boiled into this stew that caused this revolution in the most populous country in Europe at the time, the most powerful that eventually led to 17,000 people being beheaded by the guillotine in the reign of terror. Crazy, crazy stuff if, you've, if you're not fresh up on your French Revolution. But one of the things that tipped it off, as often revolutions are tipped off, is by the shortage of bread. Bread, turns out, to be really important to maintaining peace in a kingdom. And so famously, Marie Antoinette, the queen at the time, she famously said, well, if they don't have bread, let them eat cake. Quite blinded by her privilege and Perhaps she didn't even say that. It could have been propaganda. Who knows? But it's history, (laughs) and it's quite funny to think of a well-to-do queen telling them to eat cake if there is no bread. 
And all of this bread shortage and cake shortage <laughs> was precipitated by, in, in France, what are known as the Flower Wars, starting in 1775, that eventually lead to the revolution, which started in 1789. So the catalyst for the revolution was this poor grain yield, rising grain prices. Some scholars found more than 652 French food-based riots between 1760 and 1789, which is just funny if you've ever been to Paris. Food-based riots. It's actually not hard to believe. They take their food very seriously over there. But that's not the only place where flower wars or bread wars began. You can read about the flower riots in New York in 1837 or the Richmond, Virginia bread riots where southern women, feeling the effects of the rebellion, started riots. In 1863, a mob of Confederate housewives took to the streets with axes in Richmond, Virginia, chanting, Bread or Blood! while ransacking and looting shops, looking for flour, because flour prices had risen ten times in two years. Interesting. <laughs> but that's not the only time this has happened. We have in 1977, so it's a more modern thing as well, in Egypt, the bread riots. In 1977, Egypt decided to stop subsidizing basic food staples such as wheat and bread. As a result, many poor Egyptians took to the streets. Hundreds were killed and even more were injured. The riots went on for two days until the government reinstated the wheat subsidies so that many poor Egyptians could eat again. Then, even more recent history, you'll probably remember the Arab Spring, 2008 to 2011, Sudden global increases in grain prices compounded with inflation that led to the riots in Egypt, reminding a lot of people of the tumultuous events 31 years prior, which I just read about. Government subsidized flour, which was once sold for $3.14 per 100 kilograms, suddenly shot to $377 on the black market. 40% of Egyptians lived in poverty, so many of them couldn't afford to live without the bread that the government helped them afford. Riots swept the nation. Several people were killed in front of the government bakeries. And in 2010, as global grain prices continued to rise, Tunisians began to revolt. Bread in hand. And they toppled the Egyptian president in 2011 became the major event destabilizing the entire region, which now we know as the Arab Spring, because of bread. So we can read this now, and we can think it's kind of a fun story about hungry people, but it's so much more. It's about kings and kingdoms, war and rumors of war. So let's read it together, perhaps in this new light of what bread really means. Would you read with me? John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. So Jesus had just finished being in Jerusalem and arguing with 
the Jewish elites, the religious leaders, about his true authority, and he brings witnesses. And then sometime later, we don't know how much time has passed, but several weeks, no doubt, perhaps even more, Chapter 6 says this, After this, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee. So he's headed back up north, back to around where he was from, kind of the rural parts of Israel and the fishing towns around the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. And John helps us here because he knows he has both Jewish readers and non-Jewish readers. Some would have known it as the Sea of Galilee, some as the Sea of Tiberias. And a huge crowd was following Jesus because they saw the signs that he was performing by healing the sick. Jesus went up a mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. So when Jesus looked up, when he lifted his eyes, is a more direct translation, when he lifted his eyes up and noticed a huge crowd coming toward him, he asked his disciple Philip, Philip, where will we buy bread so that these people can eat? John gives us a little editorial note. He says, he asked this to test Philip, for Jesus himself knew what he was going to do. He's testing Philip. Where will we get the bread? Philip answered him, Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to even have a little. One denarii is like a day's wages, so they'd, they probably, as a traveling group, they, had, they would have a collection, a, a money bag, and Philip knows that there's about 200 denarii in there. Even if we used all of our money, we, could, we couldn't even... We couldn't get close to feeding this crowd. We've got a money problem, Philip is saying. So one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to Jesus, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So got a money problem, we've got a raw goods problem. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, so they sat down. The men numbered about 5,000. That's not including the women and the children, so add a couple more thousand probably, maybe more. Then Jesus took the loaves, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also with the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were full, Jesus told his disciples, collect the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves that were left over by those who had eaten to the full. When the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet. I go all the way back to 
those first sermons. The prophet. Not a prophet. The prophet. The one they'd been waiting for. Who will come into the world. The prophet even greater than Moses. We'll talk more about that next week with the walking on the water. There's a scene that would have come to mind here. Being out in the wilderness. Bread from heaven. The prophet. We'll talk about that next week. This must be the prophet who has come into the world. He's finally here. Therefore, when Jesus realized what they were talking about, what they were hoping, and when he realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew, he fled again into the mountain by himself. What an interesting reaction. If it's not obvious to you, he has done the opposite of what Napoleon did. The revolution that was about to be about the people and democracy, Napoleon takes charge and makes himself emperor. <laughs> Fascinating. French history. Love the French. Okay. So what I want to talk about most in this passage is this picture we have of true hospitality. Some of you have a gift of hospitality. Some of you don't. (laughs) But we should all seek to understand and model the hospitality of God that we see in this passage. So what is true hospitality? Jesus is hospitality to the world. And what does that hospitality require? Three things. I'm going to talk about true compassion. It's not true, it's not true hospitality It's not Jesus' hospitality. It's not God's hospitality if it doesn't have true compassion behind it. Number two, true sacrificial giving. It's not true hospitality. It's not Jesus' hospitality. It's not God's hospitality if there's not true sacrificial generosity. Number three, true agenda-less It ain't God hospitality, Jesus hospitality, true hospitality without agendalessness. If we have an agenda, it's not true hospitality. Not like Jesus, not like God. And then I'll conclude talking about a few things about how this picture is such a beautiful picture of heaven. Everyone knows I like to talk about heaven. We'll talk about how we bring heaven to earth through true hospitality. You ready? Let's take a drink. Here we go. Verse 5. Read it with me. Verse 5 says, So when Jesus looked up, when he lifted his eyes, he noticed, he really saw this huge crowd 
of lost people, hungry people, desperate people, looking for something. That's why they're following him. They said, it says, John says they were following him because of all the people that he had healed, the signs and wonders that he had done. And five to 10,000 of these people have now followed him. Think of how desperate they must be. Themselves sick, someone they love sick, bringing the sick and the hurting. This isn't the bourgeoisie. This isn't the royalty. These are the beggars, the poor, the powerless. They're desperate. And Jesus lifts his eyes and he sees them. He really sees them. And his heart is filled with compassion for them. And before he even starts talking to Philip about where the bread is, John says he had already decided what he was going to do in his heart. He was going to feed them. (laughs) Because of his compassion. True hospitality is sourced by compassion. He sees them as people. He sees them as image bearers of God. He most definitely, we'll come to this in a moment, doesn't see them as votes or soldiers, but as people in need. And his heart is filled with compassion, not ambition, not anything else, just compassion. He lifted his eyes, which is to say God sees you. He has not turned his face from you. He has compassion on you. It's kind of welling up in me, actually. So I'll try to hold it back. Um, Two days... uh, We've gotten sort of a few communications over the last couple weeks from our broker kind of saying, oh, it's not looking so good. But a couple of days after the first one, oh, it's pretty, I was pretty low. I was real bummed. So I did what I do when I'm down. I went to Wendy's. <laughs> and I ordered my food. It's just God's great gift to me, okay? And it's affordable. And uh, ordered my food, and I'm waiting, I'm waiting for my food, so I'm, I decided to go into the restaurant. I don't know why I went in. I almost never go in. I go to Wendy's more than I should, but I, and I never go in. I, I went in. I don't know why. And I'm standing there waiting for my food. And all of a sudden, I see out of the corner of my eye this, you know, 82-year-old woman walking towards me. And, I, and, you know, I'm a Seattleite, so I get uncomfortable, and people seem to be coming at me. And <laughs> she's coming at me, 
and she, she gets my attention and she says, young man, He says, has anyone told you how handsome you are? <laughs> now, why am I getting so emotional? <laughs> I wasn't thinking very much of myself. And I heard those words as God's words to me. Saying, I see you, Dave. You're not worthless. You haven't failed. I see you. And you're beautiful. You're my son. And he delivered this message to this sweet old lady at Wendy's. And I just... It changed me in that moment. It doesn't happen to me all the time. I want to make that clear. <laughs> I couldn't help but think God was using this woman to speak truth into my psyche and my heart and my emotions. And God saw me. He sees you. He has compassion on you. He knows life is hard. And he knows life can be lonely. And he knows that the fall has created sickness and sin and death. And in the midst of all of it, he sees you. And he has compassion on you. And he wants to tell you that you're beautiful. That you're worthy. That he sent his son to die for you so that one day you'd never hunger again. So Jesus tests Philip and he says, Philip, where will we get this food? Jesus knows that he and the Father have already seen them. He knows where it's going to come from but he's testing Philip, and Philip looks at the wallet and says, I don't know. It's not coming from what we already have. And Andrew says, it's not coming from what the people have. Where could it possibly come from? Where will the provision come from? provision comes from God's compassion. His compassion is enough to feed the world. To clothe the naked. To put a house over the homeless. And he may use money as a means, but that's not where it comes from. It comes from the heart of God from his compassion, that's the where. And Jesus gives us the model for how to pray 
to God the Father, the provider. This is how you pray and appeal, not to the money bag of God, but to the compassion of God. He gives it to us in the Lord's Prayer. Feel free to recite it with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So when we pray, God, Father, Provider, give us today our daily bread. We might as well be saying this. God, Father, Jesus, lift your eyes. See us. See me. And provide. That's what we're asking. God, have compassion on me. For all bread comes from you. All things come from you. Have compassion. And he will. The key to unlocking, I think, this whole scene is to imagine the face of Jesus, which is the face of God. The face of Jesus is the face of God. And as you picture this scene, from the time Philip comes to Jesus and says, I checked the money bag and we've only got 200 denarii, to the time the people are sitting around in groups of 50, 10,000 people sitting around, waiting for dinner. The whole time I want you to picture Jesus' face and it has a smile on it. Not disappointed in Philip or Andrew or the people. He's just smiling because he delights in answering our prayer, our prayer for compassion. And he's smiling because he knows what he's going to do. He knows that he will deliver, he knows that he will save. He delights in answering your prayer. And the thousands ate. Number two, not only does true hospitality take, require true compassion, true hospitality requires a sacrificial generosity. Look at verse 9. There's a boy, Andrew said, there's a boy over here. He has five barley loaves and two fish, a common sack lunch that he was probably given to take to this event by his mom. It's in the big meal. There's a boy over here. This boy gave. What did he give? He gave his only sure source of sustenance. He gave it away. I mean, we look at it now and we say, yeah, but, you know, 
He knew Jesus would feed the 5,000 and he'd eat his full. No, he didn't. He didn't know any of this. He gave away his personal control of the solution to his own problem, which was hunger. He gave it away. He no longer has any control over his own problem. And he puts that control into the hands of Jesus. This is what faith is. To faith in Jesus is to risk in Jesus. I'm betting on you, Jesus. I can't see it yet, but I'm betting on you. I'm risking on you. And I don't think it's an accident that this is a young boy. Time and time again, Jesus will say, you need to have faith like a child to enter my kingdom. Children risk daily trusting the love of their parents. And often their parents let them down. This boy trusted Jesus. He risked everything on Jesus. Childlike faith. Childlike generosity. I, I'm thrown time and time again, convicted time and time again by my son Grayson, eight years old. When he drives by people on the street, by the on-ramps on I-5, his heart breaks every time. We don't have anything to give them, Dad. We need to stock up, so we stocked up, and we'd get socks, and we put a power bar in the socks, and every time, and then we ran out. And he's like, we're out, power bars. And his heart, his eyes see them. My eyes have grown cold at times. His eyes are the eyes of God. And he sees them with compassion, and he wants to sacrificially give to them. I wish and pray he had this with his younger brother, but we're working on it. (laughs) Please pray. But he has the eyes of God. He has a childlike faith. He never hesitates to think about giving something of his away to those in need. This boy's sacrificial generosity creates the condition for true hospitality to sprout. We never know the extent to which God will use our faithfulness in sacrificial giving to do something far greater than we could have ever imagined. We never know the extent. And this young boy, who is probably selfish at home and like most young boys, in this moment's filled with godlike hospitality and gives everything he has away, risking in Jesus. So here's the big idea of number two. Giving should always be a little scary. Giving should always be a little scary. It's not scary. Probably not sacrificial generosity. Number three. 
Look at verses 14 and 15. So Jesus feeds thousands of people miraculously. There's so much left over. Everyone is full. Everyone is satisfied. Everyone's really glad they came to the party. Verse 14 says, And when the people saw all of this, this sign, this miracle that he had done, they said, This truly is the prophet who the people of Israel had waited for for hundreds and hundreds of years. He, he has come into the world, they said. Therefore, Jesus, when he realized this, when he realized that human nature is like this, he could see the rumblings, what they're about to do, that they would come and take him by force and force him to be their king in their image. Jesus said, no, no, no. And he ran. (laughs) Or at least he scooted off. And hid himself from them so that they wouldn't make him the kind of king they wanted. He knew what he was here to do. And so the third point is this while the crowd wanted to co opt Jesus and his power for their agenda, Jesus modeled for us that true hospitality is agendaless. There is no agenda in true hospitality. And I think we have examples of this error from time to time. Certainly in our own lives. It's very hard for me to get to a truly agendalessness hospitality. But we see it on larger scales too. I think one of the places we see it most is in sort of corporate America. I recently watched a Panera Bread commercial. It's all about the bread today, remember? And a great commercial moves my heart. But then I ask, well, why, why are they doing a commercial about this? It's a, maybe you've seen it. It's speaking of the way in which at the end of the day, Panera Bread, rather than just throw their bread away or sell it the next day, they give it away, which is great. Don't hear me say, they should just throw it away. No, I love the fact that they're giving it away. And they mention, particular numbers, that $80 million a year is donated. $80 million of bread a year is donated, and that's amazing. But then I started to wonder, why are you telling me this? What does this change? Are you trying to convince me to also give my bread away? That'd be one thing. But of course not. They're trying to get me to eat more of their product by telling me that when we don't eat all of their product, they give it away. It's a strange thing that we see happening all the time. Again, it's not wrong, and I'm glad they're giving it away, but I don't know if they need to tell me that they're giving it away. They're using their generosity as marketing. We're this kind of company. We do these kinds of things. Therefore, you should prefer us to other bread companies. And it's strange. It happens all the time. And I I think it's good to just see it, 
And just remember, that's not why Jesus feeds the 5,000. He's not feeding them so that they will then give him something. He's feeding them because he has compassion on them. In fact, he feeds them even though he knows that once they're fed and they see this miracle, they'll want to take him by force and make him do the things they want him to do. And he still feeds them. He's not surprised that they want to take him by force and make him king. He understands the way the world works. He understands that revolutions start with bread. He understands bread. And yet he feeds them anyhow because of his compassionate love. So you say, well, what, why did they want to take him by force? Well, the people had been oppressed for a long time by a lot of different rulers. And the Jewish people had very little power. That's why they were so excited that the prophet had come, the new Moses had come, the Messiah, the one that would deliver them. But their idea of deliverance was purely political and physical. Jesus came to deliver them spiritually and eternally. And so they see a man who can, by the word of his mouth, feed thousands they make the connection that to overthrow the Romans or the Herodians or whoever else was ruling over them and oppressing them, they would need a great military. And a great military has thousands of soldiers. But the problem with thousands of soldiers is that thousands of soldiers eat a lot of food. And the problem with a lot of food is it costs a lot of money. And who has all the money? The Romans, the Herodians, the royalty. And so they see a man who can make bread on command to thousands. And they start to think, this might just be the way God wants to deliver us. So they want to make him king. But they want their king to be political and military, and they want to take it by force. And Jesus obviously knew he had come not to take it by force, but by giving his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, I know that you think you know what you need, but my Father in heaven knows what you need more than you do. You don't just need more money, you don't just need more food. You don't just need a military Napoleon. You need me, more of me, more of my heart. And the only way to get that is through my son coming and dying to reconnect us in relationship. So Jesus flees. Now, what's in it for us? We're not trying to, I mean, some of us, might, most of us probably aren't trying to make Jesus our political king, our military leader. But I think we do the same thing in a lot of ways. Be careful not to see the goodness of God, the gifts of Christ, as a means to some other end. And usually that end is something you've designed, you've pictured in your mind, you've built out the movie of how this will go. 
And now you see the goodness and the gift of God as maybe he's given me the means to that end which I so desire. Rather, Christ's gifts are the ends. They are the ends in themselves. God provides because he is the good father. Period. End stop. He's the provider. So God doesn't give you something, answer some prayer, so that you will love him more or make him king of your heart. That's not why he gives you gifts. He gives you gifts because he has compassion on you and he loves you. God loves you, so he gives you gifts because he's already the true king of the universe. God's hospitality towards you is agendaless. He's not trying to get you to do something for him. But the question you need to ask yourself is, is your hospitality toward God agendaless? Are you saying, God, I'll do this for you if you do this for me? I'll give you my time. I'll give you some of my talent. I'll give you some of my resources if you do this for me. God never treats us like that. I pray we never treat him like that. That's not true hospitality. So as I was studying this, true hospitality, I thought, True hospitality, as we've described it, is a perfect picture of what God's grace is. So what is grace? Grace is the unearned, unmerited favor of God given to His children in love. And the pinnacle, of course, of this giving of God is the giving of God the Son, Jesus Christ who is given freely and fully for our salvation, deliverance, and thriving. That's grace. And the divine hospitality we see right here in this scene is so much like that pinnacle of generosity and hospitality given to us by God in Jesus. We have all the elements It's not earned. It's not merited. There's nothing that the crowd has done. It's given freely without expectation of repayment. It provides life and thriving. It delivers, in this case, from hunger. And as we've said, it's sourced by God's compassion. God's face is not turned away from the crowd, but toward the crowd. And true sacrificial generosity is required, and agendalessness is on full display. Meaning that nothing that isn't already true is hoped by Jesus to become true because of this. He doesn't give this gift to become king, he already is king. 
All things are already his, and so he gives some of them away. And I love the simplicity, even though it's inexplicable, about God giving away that which is already his to us. Simply because he chooses to. Despite us, but for us. To us, yet none of it through us. This is grace. God says, come, eat, and be full. And in that sense, where grace is most unfiltered, most obvious, most abundant, that place is a place of heaven. And so I see here in this scene just a great picture of heaven. I don't know a lot about heaven. I haven't been there. Something yet to come, but God gives us glimpses of heaven. I think we have glimpses of heaven when we come together as the church. Because hopefully this is a place of grace. This is a place where there is no agenda other than glorifying our God. This is a place of true sacrificial generosity. As we give to one another, we give of our talents, we give of our time, we give of our resources so that we might gather And this is a place of compassion that we see each other. Perhaps this is a place of grace. I hope it is. A community of grace. And so this is a place of heaven as well. But I I love to picture this scene, Jesus on the hill. And there's two things that he says, see verse 10, that are so profound in that regard. (laughs) Jesus says, have the people sit down. Have the people sit down. It seems just sort of like a throwaway line. What is he saying? Tell them to rest. Tell them to rest. Heaven is a place of rest. Take a deep breath. Whatever is coming for you on Monday, whatever big decisions you have to make, rest. Right now in this place. This is a place of rest. Jesus wants us to have rest. Then he says, or then John says this, is so interesting. There was plenty of grass in this place. I just love, like, what? A, so, like, if there wasn't, yeah. Jesus picked this place on purpose because there was plenty of grass. The ground is not hard, it is soft. The pastures of heaven are full of grass. Soft on your feet, soft on your heart soft to your ears. It's pleasant rest. And so they sit down. Let the heavenly hospitality begin as Jesus creates ex nihilo out of nothing. He creates, he speaks into existence the sustenance of life, the goodness of life, and he gives it in full. There is no fear of want with heavenly hospitality, there's just joy and laughter. Can you imagine the laughter as they're bringing around the bread? Where did it come from? This is amazing. They're in awe. The conversation would have been flowing, people. It would have been flowing. The laughter, the awe, the wonder in the grace of God. That is heaven, where we awe and wonder in the grace of God. What gifts he's given to us. Now, 
This picture of heaven is so compelling. It's, it, it is what we want. In a fact, it's the picture that drives things like the French Revolution. What if we could have that? If we could just take it by force. Through a reign of terror, if we could just, if we could just convince the people to do it this way, we could have heaven. That's not how heaven comes to earth. The Hunger Project estimates that there's 828 million people living on earth today that are chronically underfed, undernourished. That's not heaven. So couldn't we, by our effort, by our persistence, by our demand, couldn't we feed all the hungry people? Couldn't we be like Jesus? Yes and no. Only in part. Why? Because heavenly hospitality cannot be reached or paid for by money and effort alone, but only through and by the blood of Jesus Christ. Which is to say, the blood of Jesus Christ is the heart of God poured out on our hearts, which heals our hearts and makes our hearts like His heart, and then heaven can come to earth. And, and, and if you study the French Revolution, it's, it's so strange, but not, particularly in our day and age. Like, the ideals are good. We want everybody to have bread. And there are people who are taking way more than they should, their fair share. And by force, we could force people to have a heart of generosity. No, you can't. No, you can't. I've tried it with my own kids. Grayson, I know he's generous to others, but be generous to your brother. No. The only way to get a new heart is to be reborn into the image of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And that only happens because Jesus came and he died and poured his heart out for us. And only when we ask God to give us a new heart will we become the kind of people that will willingly give away that which is ours to, that, to those who are not like us, don't look like us, don't have the same nationality as us, only then will heaven come. Um, there's a really interesting movement. Raise your hand. Has anyone heard of effective altruism? The movement effective altruism. It started in Cambridge, or was it Oxford? I think it was Cambridge. And it sort of made its way around sort of the elite universities and uh, it's a philosophical movement in which, and I, I, I just want to say I sort of agree with many of the premises of it, of, hey, we need to know which organizations are most effective in applying our money and charity to the maximal effect. And so they have algorithms and Formulas that they've come up to rank which of these organizations and charities people should give their money to. And in a sense, it sounds a lot like the church. They talk about tithing, that they think people, everybody should give 10% away. 
but to their organizations that they think are effective. And so I kind of like that idea. I don't think we should just give our money to ineffective organizations. And I do think we should give money away. But what's interesting is this is a movement uh, which is purposefully secular, which means devoid of any religion or God, saying we don't need God or religion or the divine or spirituality to make us generous people. We just need to be generous. It's the best use of your life. And it's a strange beautiful, weird reflection of the heart of God. And the question is, will it work? (laughs) They're targeting the world's brightest and richest, and one of their principles is make as much money as you could possibly make and then give much of it away. And so it's a strange thing. Will it work? I doubt it. And the reason I doubt it is because of what I've just said. While it may strike on face value as altruism or generosity, which is on point with the divine generosity of God, there is also, it seems, at work some other thing. Or you could say it in the terms we've just spoken of. They miss two of the three marks of true hospitality. They have this sacrificial... Wait... They have this compassion. I think it's, it's flowing out of true compassion. They see the true need, and they truly want to help. But I do think it lacks the other two, which is sacrificial generosity and agendalessness. And here's why. If you read more about this, there's actually an article in The Economist you can read about this. Um, they give examples, and one of the examples that they give that the effective altruists will highlight is, uh, say you're going to medical school, and you have a desire, you see a com- compassion for uh, people, uh, let's say you're living in London, and you, you see the need in, in uh, parts of Africa for more medical care and doctors, and so you're trying to decide what to do with your life. Effective altruism would say this, um, the numbers say you could, yes, move your life and go there and help, and you would be able to effectively, and they have a point system, affect 300, um, I forget what the term is, but basically quality uh, years of life over your career, 300. However, if you stay in London and start a private practice in London, the amount of money you'll be able to make, if you then gave that uh, uh, most, uh, a lot of that away, very sacrificial giving, if you gave that away, you'd be able to effectively help, you know, a thousand quality life years. So actually, it's better for you to stay and live the good life in London while still giving away to help those in Africa. Interesting. The math works out. But something doesn't. And the thing that doesn't, in my mind, is Is it really sacrificial giving if that's the way you're doing the math? If I stay here and live the good life but give a lot of way, I'm actually helping more people. I don't know. Perhaps for some, the heart is pure. Perhaps for others, it's a nice justification for living the good life. 
In the same way, I'm not sure if that is agendaless. To say, this is why I'm doing something, is in a sense to have an agenda. To be the most effective altruist you can be. And in that sense, I feel like it falls short of our criteria for true hospitality. I want people and my colleagues in the effective altruism community to see me as generous. I want to get to the end of my life and be seen as a generous person. That's not the reason to show hospitality. That's not why God shows hospitality to us. That's not why Jesus feeds the 5,000, so that he would be seen as generous. He does it because his heart is moved by compassion, and he wants to give to those he loves. So, I don't think it works to just try to be what we hope to be so that the world might become what we wish it were. Only a movement that is infected by this divine grace that we just spoke of, this divine hospitality, this heavenly hospitality, only a movement where the individual people are given new hearts, I think can bring heaven to earth in the way God wants to bring heaven to earth. Which is to say, he wants to bring us a new heart. More than bread, more than water, more than perfect worship, he wants to give us a new heart. The unavoidable thing about the picture of heavenly hospitality we have in this passage is that Jesus is standing center frame. We can only learn heavenly hospitality from Jesus. We can only live out heavenly hospitality by having our hearts redeemed by Jesus. There is no picture of heaven in which Jesus is not in the frame. That's what I'm trying to say. The problem isn't stinginess. There's plenty of food to go around. There's plenty of land to be harvested. There's plenty of rain. There's plenty of seed. God has given us everything we need to even solve a tangible need like hunger. The problem is the human heart. We need hearts like Jesus. And if we had that, even now, we could solve world hunger. That's my claim. This is a problem only solvable by the supernatural regeneration of the heart. No matter the amount of shame that we place in our campaigning, we will never get the end desire. Probably what we'll get is more terror. That's my guess. So, this is in some ways a very long-winded, self-serving sermon that says the most important thing we can do, even while we're living out the heart of Jesus, is to tell people about Jesus. How will their hearts be changed if they never meet Jesus? How will they meet Jesus if they never hear about Jesus? How will they hear about Jesus if nobody speaks about Jesus? We have a place. <laughs> we have a role. We, have, we, we need people to know about Jesus if we care about world hunger. It's not a math problem to be solved. 
but a, but a heart malfunction to be cured by King Jesus. Even if Jesus became king back then, he wouldn't have been able to solve it because he couldn't solve the heart problem just by feeding people. Okay. Jesus is the king. And, and, and we should do what the king tells us to do because he has a plan to solve every world problem. So what can you practically do now? Four quick things. One, not a bad idea to use the principles of effective altruism in your own life. Give to good things. Invest in good things, including investing in good churches that are telling people about Jesus and, and not hiding Jesus behind some wall of politics or some wall of, 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 of social justice or some wall of some project in the world, but show people Jesus so that their hearts can change and they can go start projects and do social justice and be generous and vote well, okay? So use effective altruism to invest in good investments with the money God's given you. Two, primarily invest in those things that do seem to reveal Jesus in the world. So there's some primacy to that. Number three, like the disciples, you will struggle to see how Jesus will do what he seems to be preparing to do. Like he'll, he'll tell you, have them go sit <laughs> down. Well, we only have five loaves and two fish. Yeah, yeah, just tell them to go get ready. And this is like sort of relevant for us. Like Jesus is telling us, just be ready. Just keep gathering. He's like, well, where are we going to do it? I don't know. How are we going to do it? I'm not sure. When is he going to? I don't know. I mean, it's just he's saying, get ready. I'm going to act. Okay. So we can, as disciples of Jesus, not get stuck behind the what, but just do what he says to do anyhow. That's humility. That's what's to be praised in the stories when you look at the disciples. They did do that. Even though they didn't know where the money's coming from, even though they didn't know where the food's coming from, they just did what he said to do. And then he showed up. So we can live like that ourselves, both individually and as a community. Number four, practice heavenly hospitality in your own homes. Can I, if you're a cohort leader, would you stand up real quick? Cohort leaders, just stand up. Cohort leaders. Thank you, cohort leaders. You guys are, no, don't sit down. Thank be, be in, You guys practice heavenly hospitality. For 12 weeks straight, you open your homes and you say, without an agenda, come, have community, have a place. Thank you for practicing this in your homes. To all of us, we can practice this in our homes. You can sit down now. Thank you. To have compassionate eyes, to see people in need. In our community, it's not usually bread, it's something else. What is it? Loneliness. What is it? Purposelessness. What is it? Friendship. What is it? A place to share, a place to be heard, a place to hear. What is it? Have compassionate eyes to see what the people around you need and then sacrifi sacrificially give something away so that they might be fed. 
and do it all while being agendaless. Don't do it as a means to prop yourself up or just to be self-righteous in your own eyes. Don't expect anything from them. Just do it because this is how God loves you. Heavenly hospitality. That we might be known for that at Sedaris. Heavenly hospitality. Let's pray.